0: Brain injuries have recently received a lot of attention for their effects on athletes and soldiers returning from war. But the Brain Trauma Foundation estimates that 5.3 million Americans, or 2% of the U.S. population, are living with the disabilities resulting from a traumatic brain injury. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with a clinical psychologist, a social worker and a representative from IU Speech and Hearing Cognitive Rehab Program about how brain injuries affect the lives of victims and what treatment options are available in Southern Indiana. We'll also hear from a survivor of a brain injury about his experience. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving Southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net.
1: And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.
0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And head injuries have received a lot of attention lately, uh, specifically from discussions about football players and also veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. But at least 5.3 million Americans live with disabilities resulting from a traumatic brain injury, according to the Brain Trauma Foundation. And today on Noon Edition, we're going to take a look at this invisible disease, how brain injuries affect victims, and what is being done in southern Indiana to treat them. We have uh, four guests with us in the studio today, Dr. Stephen Curtis is here. He is a neuroscience-trained clinical psychologist with a specialty in performance psychology. He works with brain-damaged individuals and their families. Jean Kapler is with us. She is a local support network leader for the Resource Facilitation Program through the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. She is a licensed clinical uh, social worker with a specialty in working with people with brain injuries. Laura Karcher is here, she is an Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences at Indiana University. She is a supervisor of the Cognitive Rehab Program at IU Speech and Hearing. And also joining us today is Nick Philbeck. Nick has been a brain injury survivor since January of 2004 when he suffered a head injury during a basketball game when he was just 15 years old. He's been a member of the brain injury support group at the iu speech and hearing clinic in bloomington since february of 2012. if you want to join us on the program please call us at 855-0811 in bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon and you can follow us on twitter at noon edition and i also have to add i, I think today in the newspaper that uh, tom crean actually said yesterday that, uh, you know, he said that Devin Davis, the mm-hmm. IU basketball player who was injured in a in an accident over the weekend, has a traumatic brain injury. That was uh, what mm-hmm. Coach Crean said. So, uh, you know, this is a very timely topic. Nick, I want to go to you first because y- you were injured in a basketball game when you were 15, <laughs> and that was how many years ago? That... Uh, almost 11. Almost 11 years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting closer. Yeah. So how'd, how'd you get hurt? What happened?
2: Uh, I was going for a loose ball, and I hit heads with another player, and then <laughs> my head hit the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember if I lost consciousness or not, but it was definitely sort of an altered state of consciousness. But uh, I went to the, the hospital and everything on my CT scan checked out. I didn't have a concussion or anything like that. And so it was actually many years before I found out that what I had suffered was a traumatic brain injury. And a lot of that was resulting from uh, a malformation at the base of my skull and my cervical spine that had been undiagnosed up until the point that, that I was injured. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, it made me aware of something that made me more susceptible to a traumatic brain injury and really more susceptible to a lot of different kinds of injuries that
0: I, I hadn't been aware of until that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll come back and talk to you a, a little bit more. I'd like to get uh, some definitions out of the way. What What exactly is a traumatic brain injury? Who wants to Start with that, Jean.
3: Well, um, a a traumatic brain injury is uh, an injury to the brain tissue that is caused by either a blow to the head, um, uh, some sort of mechanical force type injury. Uh, and that's uh, distinguished from just sort of a general acquired brain injury, which can result from a number of different things, like uh, a stroke, um, uh, maybe a lack of oxygen to the brain, say in a near drowning experience, or a heart attack, or something that kind of more internal and external right, right. sort of thing. Yeah, w- would you say that's a mm-hmm. good way to kind of define it? Um, or a disease process can mm-hmm. you know, result in some sort of brain injury okay. over time, even. Uh, brain tumor and surgery if you're cutting into someone's brain and taking out a part of that that is, in a controlled way, injuring the brain. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so concussions that we keep hearing about, those would be traumatic brain injuries? Yes. Okay, all right. So, Dr. Curtis, you uh, you work with a lot of people who have brain damage. So, what kind of you know what are the what are things that people should be aware of? I mean, what what are the symptoms that they might uh, receive, and then what are the some some of the issues that, that come from this?
4: Well, most injuries um, <clears throat> seem to to involve the frontal areas of the brain. It's we're moving forward usually in in some sort of vehicle, frequently with an accident. Uh, so we're stopping real short Mm -hmm. (laughs) the brain is Mm -hmm. bumping up against the front of the skull and uh, unfortunately that's the area of the brain where we have our executive function so making decisions choosing among options making good decisions uh, can often be impaired Uh, capacity to think about more than one thing at a time prioritize uh, kind of manage life generally can be impaired in in, Mm -hmm. uh, subtle and not so subtle ways uh, sometimes it takes a while to recognize that. Gee, I'm not functioning in the same way. If it's a mi- uh, milder concussion, uh, then it's it sometimes goes undiagnosed, and a person can live with an impairment for a long time and not recognize it.
1: Do I remember correctly that that's one of the last areas of the brain to mature as well?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's increasingly recognized now that brain growth is uh, goes on until near the end of the twenties, twenty eight. Uh, 30 years old even. We still have that frontal polar cortex in particular growing in that allows us to make uh, decisions and I don't think that's lost on the car rental companies that don't allow you to rent a car until you're 25. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Good point.
0: Yeah, I know uh, our friend Jean, um, Joe Bolte-Taylor who's on mm-hmm. the, the show several, has been on several times talks about how you know, the brain is developing for quite a long time I think she's always talked about at least 25 so yeah, mm-hmm. same thing. Now, Keep Laura, them
1: alive till 25, her, I think, her, is her mind. Right, right. <laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> Laura Karcher is with the uh, IU Speech and Hearing. So oh, speech issues are, are one of the major uh, things that you notice? It,
5: it yeah. depends on where in the brain the injury has occurred. Um, but oftentimes we're working with folks on communication impairments. So as Dr. Curtis said, uh, the communication impairment may involve um, not understanding the perspective of others. Um, It may involve more of the cognitive types of functions. Um, So memory, attention, uh, if you can't attend to a situation, it's difficult to communicate about it. Mm -hmm. But if there is an injury on the left side of the brain, um, difficulty thinking of the words that you wanna say, being able to understand what others are saying to you, difficulties reading, writing, Um, visually processing information. And uh, even though our profession is called uh, speech therapy, we do a lot of work, um, especially with individuals with brain injury on those cognitive communication functions. Mm -hmm.
0: So if you wanna join our program today, all of of you out there listening, you can Give us a call, 855 or one You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Nick, I want to go back to, to you. So you you sort of lived with this brain injury for quite a while before you knew that you had it. Right? Yes. It was- so, so how did you notice?
2: I started noticing right away, uh, you know, about a week after the accident I had, I started noticing uh, I got a really, really bad headache just all of a sudden out of nowhere, and I had never really been someone who got regular headaches, and along with that, I got nauseous, I had uh, visual disturbances, uh, and, you know, a couple weeks after that, I started developing sort of muscle tremors, and I in coordination in my hands so you know I just wasn't as as coordinated I wasn't as focused and you know the the headaches especially really affected me and you know it, it affected me in school and everywhere else but I really didn't know what was going on so you know I just kept kind of pushing through school you know I didn't miss time and you know I just kept going but i noticed you know my grades started to slip a little bit more as i just wasn't able to focus as much it was taking me longer to try to do everything and you know it 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 affected my ability to even just get up in the mornings and and go because i was having difficulty getting to sleep because of the headaches and because of the new things that were going on mm. and so you know even though i didn't know what was going on i knew something was clearly wrong but after a while of not knowing what was going on, I kind of got used to it, to the point where you know I kept going to high school. I graduated from high school. I went to college for a year and a half. And uh, like during the, the time I was at college, I started having even more severe symptoms and they really started to, to get worse. And you know, by the time I, I got to my third semester of college, I missed more time away from, from school than I was actually there. And even though I had completed all the makeup work, they told me that I wasn't physically present enough to, to complete the classes. So at that point, I knew I needed to step out and figure out what was going on. And it was about a year after that that we finally figured out that it was related to the to brain injury.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. And how did you find that out? Which, did you have to go to a series of doctors? or? or yes. It sounds like it was probably a process.
2: Yeah. And finding the right doctor was a huge part of that process. And... I know uh I saw some great doctors in Indiana, but uh, my doctor, my main neurologist, who was sort of referring me out to some some specialist neurologists, was saying that you know he didn't feel like they had any place in Indiana that had the technologies or you know the understanding at that time. To really address what was going on or figure out what was wrong. So, uh, you know, he sent me off to places like Iowa. The University of Iowa had a, a specialist with uh, the kind of malformation that I had in my spine. Uh, and then uh, he sent me to the University of Chicago, where there was a specialist neurologist and a neurosurgeon there. And then they finally sent me to Cleveland Clinic, which is where I was finally diagnosed with the first really correct diagnosis beyond just the malformation at at the base of my skull. And that was really the key, Mm -hmm. finding that first diagnosis that really explained why I was having those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And once I got that, I was fortunate enough that the super specialist within that field, who is really the world expert on that condition, is only five hours away in Toledo, Ohio. So I've been able to see him twice a year ever since I got that diagnosis. And any time I have any kind of issues related to it, I can contact him or go up and see him. And you know, so it was a very, very long process, about six and a half years before I was able to see a specialist who really understood what was going on and could explain why I was having the symptoms I did.
1: Right. That must have been a really challenging time for you.
2: Definitely. And I think part of the most challenging thing was not knowing what was happening or sure. you know, what I could be doing, what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And you know I was used to the way I functioned before I had that accident. And since nothing I had heard up until that time really explained why I, w- I was having those issues for those six and a half years. You know, I didn't feel like I was really doing what I should be doing or you know I wasn't functioning the way I should be functioning and so it really felt like it was reflecting on me in a lot of ways in the in the way that I was doing things and you know my grades in in college weren't weren't the worst but they certainly weren't what I wanted to have and you know even some of my professors expressed their disappointment in the the effort that that I had put out there Really, not knowing that
1: mm-hmm.
2: this was sort of an underlying issue because I didn't know exactly that this was an issue. Mm-hmm. So you know, they only knew the the parts that I could explain to them. Mm-hmm. But these, a lot of this was unexplained and unexplainable. Mm-hmm.
1: And wow, how frustrating! Yeah.
0: Well, Gene uh, and and uh, Dr. Curtis, how. Uh, typical is this. I mean, do people, uh, I mean, Nick's talked about a situation where he had a brain injury for six and a half years without really having that be diagnosed correctly? Mm-hmm. Do you see patients who go a long time before being diagnosed? That
3: is actually really common. Is it? Um, it? It's it's sort of like this invisible disability, and it's oftentimes undiagnosed. Even at the point of the emergency room, people mm-hmm. come in, and if they're they seem to be functioning okay, and there's no obvious brain bleed from let's say a, a fender bender. Um, then they're sent home, well, you know, take it easy. You've got a mild concussion, you'll be fine. But the the symptoms he
1: described there are
3: classic. Mm Mm-hmm, and yet so often it gets um, misdiagnosed as depression or as, uh, you know, sometimes, oh, well, you're just not motivated or you've got a lot on your mind or, you know, and I I just talked with somebody yesterday. I was doing a presentation in Southern Indiana, group of professionals at an independent living center and one of the staff talked about, you know, uh, me and my ex-wife were in a a car wreck years ago, and she's my ex-wife now, but she was never the same after that accident, was not diagnosed with a brain injury, but um, there was a personality change, and so there probably was a brain injury. And in fact, uh, you know, it's not screened for in most mental health settings or addiction settings, and the populations that are going to those settings have a, a higher than average incidence of brain injury, and no questions are being asked. When you ask the questions, uh, I talked w- with one person who, when I said, you know, "Have you ever been knocked unconscious or dazed at any point?" She's like, "Well, which time?" <laughs> and you know, she had a dozen such incidents. Oh my gosh! And you know, identified one where there were actually mo- she noticed some changes after that, but never was diagnosed with head trauma.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow. And also one of the uh, uh, factors that, that is always at play is if you damage the brain in almost any way, any considerable damage, there's an unavoidable consequence of depression. Uh, it's just part of the, the physical response to having a, a general brain injury is you have the consequence of what we would measure and we can, and we can measure as depression. So when you have a person with a brain injury, over the next few months, maybe extended into time, you're gonna have symptoms of depression that make it more difficult to function. Mm -hmm. So as we try to determine what physical damage has been done, it's almost, well, it's impossible really to separate out the effects on cognition and memory of a significant depression from what might have happened and um, damage to the to the tissue itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Nick, were you fighting depression on top of your other primary injuries?
4: Yeah,
2: and that especially happened after I left college. Yeah, I bet. And you know, being isolated, and not mm-hmm. really seeing people, not really getting out, and you know, especially since I had gone to college uh, <laughs> away from home and coming back home and not really being around. That support network outside mm-hmm. of my family, who are a great support network, but it's still, you know, most of the time being spent in my room alone. And, you know, that definitely set in a lot of a depression and a lot of issues that result from that. And so, you know, I was also sleeping many, many hours of the day. And whether that's a cause or symptom of depression, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to, to tell for me, but I know that that was something. That made it a lot more difficult, and again made me sort of reflect on myself as not really being as able to do those things, and didn't really feel like myself. And you know, it was very challenging, you know, just to to my feelings about my own character, the fact that I wasn't getting out and doing things, and when people were asking, "Well, what's going on with you?" and I didn't feel really comfortable saying, "Well, I'm sitting in my room on the computer for you know." a few hours and then I sleep the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, That's not something that you want to share with people. You want to have right. things going on. And right. you know, as much as I tried to pursue other things, I didn't feel like I was doing them as well as I would have before. Mm-hmm. And that made it difficult to keep going. Sure. Because I was trying to do things at a level <laughs> that I had done them before. And that was not really working for me. And it took me a long time to go back to the basics of what I have been doing and a huge help with that was going to the speech and hearing clinic and working with those cognitive skills like Laura was talking about you know for me it wasn't my speech or my hearing that the people had noticed were concerns but it was my cognitive decision making mm. it was problem solving it was planning sure. organization of things in my mind and I I didn't know that those were the big issues. I just had a general idea that I had this brain fog that was making it difficult to do these things. But understanding exactly what the nature of that was was a hugely important Mm. part of it. And that's what I was able to get when I went to the speech and hearing clinic and actually did some exercises and saw, wow, I'm really not able to do these things as well as I thought I should be able to. But also having the attitude really shift in doing that because you know where I had been trying to do things that were difficult and at a level that I, I had been doing them before the injury was making it difficult and making me not want to keep doing it because I wasn't able to do it very well. Whereas going back and really starting at those building blocks and just seeing yeah I'm not able to do this very well but since I had weekly meetings at the speech and hearing clinic I would do the same exercise and come back a week later and see the kind of progress I had made on that and I realized, wow, if I just started at these building blocks and thought of it as I have a traumatic brain injury, I'm going to need to rebuild some of these things and just start back from the beginning. It happened really quickly that I was able to rebuild those processes and get to a point where I was doing those exercises exactly how I thought I should be doing them. Mm-hmm.
1: That's
2: and, great. And, I, I, and you were able I, to let I, yourself I off, the off the hook. hook. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Including being so hard on yourself. And
2: a lot of people in the brain injury support group have expressed the same frustration with not being able to do things the way they had before and feeling like a different person. And part of that rebuilding to what whatever you want to be, I think, is an opportunity that a lot of people have seen within the support group and An opportunity that can be lost on a lot of people with brain injury is that it does give you an opportunity to go back to the very basics the very beginnings of things and think of what kinds of things do i want to learn what kinds of things do i want to do and really who do i want to become now and that's something that's been a really powerful part of the process for me
0: and i know a lot of other people have expressed the the same
2: kinds of things
4: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) laura can you talk a little bit more about the about the rehab program and Mm -hmm. about the, the support group
5: yeah, um, rehabilitation after brain injury ideally is a team effort. And um, that team includes uh, the folks at, at the acute care, the emergency room, all the way through to perhaps inpatient rehabilitation, a rehabilitation hospital stay. There's a couple in Indianapolis and then certainly outpatient services. But it goes beyond that, like Nick mentioned. Um, it's it's about educating the individual with the brain injury, the family, the, the folks that, that they're with perhaps, um, peers in school, perhaps um, folks at the the job site that they're returning to, Mm. certainly their family, caregivers, staff that they're working with. Um, And then the the additional component to that is a support network and building that. Um, So we offer evaluation services at the clinic and then certainly individualized treatment. Um, that focuses on rebuilding skills, on compensating for deficits that folks have, and, and creating a new normal. I, th- I think you stated mm-hmm. that really well, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, an important piece of that is support from individuals who've gone through that. Um, I can talk about the statistics and what should happen and could happen, but um, our brain injury support group that meets the first Monday of each month from 5.30 to 7 um, is full of individuals who have been there and. And have experienced brain injury in one form or another and and for some it's been 20 odd years and for others it's been much more recent and we also have um, a supportive group of of caregivers family members siblings spouses um, that join as well and so support and education for them is is, I would say equally as important it is for the survivor themselves Mm -hmm.
2: sure and I know my mom's been coming along with me to a lot of these meetings and it's such a process for anyone who's a caregiver, too. And I think that that, their own sort of rehabilitation within this and, you know, how whatever is happening reflects on them is a hugely important part of of the process. And, you know, I know my mom can get very frustrated that, you know, she feels like she's not able to do enough for me. And if I'm struggling with anything, she feels like it's a reflection on her. And at times she can get to the point where she's trying to do way too much and it ends up making me frustrated. And then <laughs> if I get frustrated with her, then she feels like she's failed me even more. <laughs> so, you know.
1: It's always the mom's fault. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> This much I know. <laughs>
2: and so having the caregivers there who, you know, kind of, had those same kind of feelings too, and those same experiences with, with their kids, or you know, with their spouse or whoever it might mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm. You know, just be able to share that frustration, and know that everybody else is going through those same things too. But hearing from people in a way that you know sort of validates their experience, so you know, you can hear it from your kids saying, you know, I'm frustrated with this kind of thing or that kind of thing. But you know, ultimately, it's easy to hear like them just saying that you're a failure and not saying, well, I'd really prefer these or like, these are my needs. Can we work together to just meet these needs and figure out a plan Mm -hmm. that works best? Mm -hmm. And being able to sort of step out of that really emotional relationship and hear it from some other people sometimes makes it a little clearer in in their minds and helps them sort of apply that in a little bit better way when you get into those emotional
0: situations at home. Mm
1: -hmm. Excellent point.
0: Well, you're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking about what's being done in southern Indiana, about uh, brain injuries, some of the some of the programs available, and also some of the issues involved with traumatic brain injuries. If you want to uh, give us a call and join the discussion, we would welcome you, 855 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about brain injuries, uh, traumatic brain injuries. Um, timing for this is um, based on a whole lot of things, including uh, you know what's been happening with football players and concussions, as well as. A lot of veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and even uh, the news recently that an IU basketball player who was in an accident is is trying to recover from a traumatic brain injury. So we have uh, four guests with us in the studio. Dr. Stephen Curtis is here, Gene Kapler, Laura Karcher, and Nick Philbeck. Um, we'll get into a little bit about what they do when they when we, we uh, revisit with them. But if you wanna call us, 855-0811 in Bloomington, one 285 9348 And you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And Dr. Stephen Curtis is a neuroscience-trained clinical psychologist with a specialty in performance psychology. And he works with brain-damaged individuals and their families. And we were just talking at the break about a new support group for the caregiver. And uh, Dr. Curtis, could you talk about
4: that? Yeah, I was happy to come over to the um, Brain Injury Center and, um, and recognize uh, this need for support for the caregivers, mm-hmm. that uh, having a brain injury is certainly uh, upsetting to the, to the person and, and certainly to the family and the caregivers and have to redefine their lives usually very quickly around this loved one who needs uh, support and care. Um, I think there's a whole family trauma in some sense that's experienced, so um, certainly grief and and then a big question mark about loss of function. How, how badly has this person uh, been damaged by this accident? What capacity do they have for recovering? What is our role as caregivers to help that happen? And uh, you go in your life from a normal sequence of living to immediately something that's quite different. Uh, Transitions, I guess, is really the way I look at this. Everyone in the family is going through a transition, redefining who they are day to day and what their activities should be and how do they then bend their lives to be most optimally supportive of this family member. Requires lots and lots of redefinitions. Uh, uh, Where does your job fit in? compared to caring for your loved one, where do your other family members fit in. It's just a a real challenge to go through these transitions. My strategy is to, I think, help people do what I call is build mental strength um, with repetition of uh, learning how to calm down on cue, learning how to think positively about themselves, and then learning how to stay uh, visionary in their approach to living day-to-day, that they have big goals that they're gonna continue to pursue, that you can't just give up your life in favor of this in- injury. That mm-hmm. applies certainly to brain damaged people and to their family members. So that's really the goal of the program, is to support the family members in their development of more and a more effective uh, mental strength strategies for living day-to-day. Uh, I think there are probably uh, skills that everyone would benefit from, but especially when people are going through uh, transitions like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: We have a we have two phone calls, so I think we're going to take Gary first. Gary's from Gosport, and he's suffered from a brain injury. So, Gary. Yes. Yeah. Go uh, ahead.
7: Fifty years ago, I had an auto accident, and uh, ended up uh, in the hospital unconscious for eighteen days. Wow. I recovered well enough to be put together a model airplane and an old girlfriend came to visit me she read about the accident in the paper and that uh, girlfriend later became my wife in two months
0: wow that's nice story
7: but but i i've rarely had any problems uh
0: since that toward
7: the front of my brain type injury but i have a question uh, somewhere along the line, I, I remember hearing that uh, brain uh, injuries could later lead to Alzheimer's. Is that, is that correct or not?
2: Who
0: wants to take that? Gene?
3: Well, what I know is that there is some increase in the risk of developing Alzheimer's in people who have had a brain injury. That doesn't mean you're going to. Uh, it just means that there's a little increase in the risk.
7: Mm-hmm. But anyway, I enjoy your discussion your there. I enjoyed the gentleman with uh, tremendous recovery and, and uh, rehab that he went through. And I appreciate the speech and hearing center. I, I, I'm a teacher, and I wish I had uh, knowledge of the speech and hearing center's uh, care for brain trauma uh, help uh, with a couple of students I had.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Gary, thanks a lot for the call. We appreciate it. Okay. Congratulations uh-huh. you your on your recovery. Great. Right. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Uh huh. Eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have Jane next. Jane is from Bloomington.
8: Yes. Hello. Hi, Jane. Hi. Um, I'm really enjoying the program as well, um, and I think that uh, – the difficulties of obtaining a diagnosis with a dra- uh, traumatic brain injury are probably similar for other kinds of uh, more uh, less traditional kinds of illnesses. Um, that's that's just a point to make, but I am very appreciative to hear about the IU speech and hearing clinic uh, services, as well as all the services being mentioned and the support group. And a question comes to mind um, about whether you folks are also serving uh, veterans, because of course at this time we think of veterans with traumatic brain injury as well as uh, others. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit more or a bit about that.
5: Mm-hmm. Laura? Yeah. Um, we do provide services for veterans um, when we're able to collaborate with the the VA system. Um, there are some roadblocks that I think anybody outside of the VA system is trying to, to work through in order to provide those services. So we have seen several veterans at the um, clinic. Veterans are certainly encouraged to join us in the support group. Um, You don't have to have been a patient of the clinic at all to to join the support group. Anybody can drop in at any time. Um, So we we certainly would like to see more of those veterans and hope to do so in the future.
8: Does it affect um, what happens, the fact that they um, also may be suffering PTSD, or is PTSD sort of a typical thing for people who have suffered traumatic brain injury in what- any way?
5: Certainly, the, the PTSD um, is an associated factor with the brain injuries that we're seeing in the veterans. Um, however, PTSD is also something um, that can be, be seen in folks with any brain injury. Um, certainly, um, the the trauma that one suffers after um, an assault, after a motor vehicle accident, um, we we don't provide that particular um, treatment per se at the speech and hearing clinic, but um, I think it also illustrates the need for a team approach. And so it's, it's pretty frequent that folks that we see for strategies, cognitive language um, treatment, they're also getting concomitant counseling services. Um, Jean uh, has, has been uh, able to provide a number of those services for us, um, Dr. Curtis as well. Uh, so certainly combining traditional services as well as counseling to address the effects of PTSD is important. Well. Thank you very much.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Jane. Uh, We have uh, two more callers that have joined us, too. So let's go to Randy from Bloomfield next. Randy, go ahead. Okay, Randy, we have you on the line. Hello, Bob. Hey, Randy, go ahead.
1: Hello, Mary. Hi, Randy. (laughs) How are you? Well, we're great. How are you today?
9: Not bad at all. I have a question directed towards your panel of experts on the brain. Okay uh... a few years ago there was a story that was not only national news it was international news it actually went viral about a construction worker who was uh, just going along about his day framing houses and uh... working with pneumatic tools uh, air nail gun uh... ricocheted and the nail lodged behind his eye socket and through his brain and uh... He didn't even realize that it had occurred, and he got home that evening, and I guess he uh, started to have really bad headache, And his wife took him to the emergency room, and they said, Do "You have a nail in your." And I just, I, I'm curious, how does, how is that possible for someone to
0: to survive
9: something like that? And I've never heard any follow up on how he turned out but it was uh, it was it was pretty pretty much on all the news networks when it happened and I, I don't know how he turned out but uh, did, now how is a human brain able to actually survive something like that
0: all right uh, we're gonna we're gonna go to gene first.
3: Well, you know, it strikes me that every injury is unique, and um, so what happens from an injury, you know, how can a person survive a nail in their brain, Um, you know, partly that's kind of localized as opposed to very diffuse. Uh, It depends on the extent of the damage and what part of the brain is damaged, and so, you know, that gentleman, I guess, in a way got lucky that that nail went in in a way that did not kill him. Um, there have been people who have had gunshots to to the head. Um, uh, Gabby Gabby Giffords, uh, U.S. representative, was was shot and has recovered. Um, so it's kind of amazing how uh, you know people can survive some of these really serious injuries. Yeah. Um, so
4: one of the famous cases uh, cited in neurological history, uh, the treatment of neurological injuries, is. a uh, case of a man in, I think, 1858, a man named Phineas P. Gage, who was tamping explosives on a railroad construction site, and the tamping rod was blown up through underneath his chin and um, made a very large hole, and uh, he was able to survive, uh, was not, uh, didn't succumb to infection, um, ended up going around the country and putting a, a rod down through the hole in his head Um, I I, I, I I (laughs) think—I just wanted to mention that because it's a famous case, and the fact is that the man was able to continue living uh, with this hole. Uh, Unfortunately, he was starting to make some bad decisions, and his life did uh, (laughs) deteriorate. But there's the capacity, especially in the frontal part of the brain, to survive these injuries, but you're not going to be the same person. And if you ask the right questions of a person who who has— survive these injuries usually can find that there is some deficit.
9: Well, and I do have another I, I, another part to this question that kind of is it sometimes in the best interest of the patient to leave the impaled object?
4: I, the neurologist would have to make that dis- determination. Is it actually safe to uh, remove it and is it in a position where it's going to cause further damage and Uh, That would be a a case-by-case basis. Um, I know uh, with epilepsy, there are uh, epileptic seizure foci in the brain that can be determined, and then the surgeon has to decide, do we remove this point of focus where the epilepsy begins and the seizures begin, or do we not and allow this person just to continue living with the epilepsy? Because if we remove the area that's damaged, the person will live with more trauma and more uh, deficit.
9: So, in some cases, it's better off to leave, like, say, if I had a nail in the brain and everything's functioning fine, I'd be
3: better
1: off just to leave it?
3: Uh, I think it. you might be better off just to go get it checked out with uh, a doctor and, and go based on their recommendations. Randy,
1: you're not trying to tell us something, are you? <laughs> not at all, Marion. <laughs>
9: I love your show. <laughs> uh, and you know what? I really miss Tom Car Talk.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah that's yeah. a
1: shame. Well, thanks for your call today, Randy. It's nice to hear from you.
0: Good. Yep. yep. All right. 855-0811 <coughs> in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can join the live chat at WFIU.org. Slash Noon Edition, or you could follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So that,
1: that calls a tough act to follow because yeah. it's kind of you know, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm curious, how are we doing, in in your estimation, as a society, uh, supporting people with traumatic brain injury? Do we have a? It sounds like we may have a long path to to walk on
3: this one. You know. Uh, I, I see a lot of need for a lot more support. Um, you know, there, there are some innovative programs that have been rolled out in Indiana, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But um, just in, in doing that work, I see so many unmet needs. I see mm. a, a, the TBI Medicaid waiver funds are useful for folks that have the right level of care, most folks with brain injuries that are trying to return to work and and live a stable life don't meet that level of care. You almost Mm -hmm. have to be kind of nursing home level of care to receive those waiver funds. And so there are support services that need to be in place, but there's no money for them. And uh, now one bright spot, I think, is a program that I'm associated with called Resource Facilitation, which is through the Rehab Hospital of Indiana, um, we're based in Indianapolis, but I'm actually based in Bloomington because I'm serving the southwest portion of the state. We've already been doing resource facilitation in central and northeast Indiana, and we're, we're now expanding statewide. Um, and what this does, uh, it's kind of a, a new approach to supporting people with brain injuries who are trying to return to work, um, either to their old job or maybe find a new job. Or returning to school and they're working with vocational rehabilitation to do that what happens nationally people with brain injuries are able to return to work or school at about 30 to 40 Mm -hmm. percent which leaves the majority of people never successfully returning to the workplace and when and part of the reason is Rehab comes up with a wonderful plan with referrals and services to help support the person. But because their brain is injured, sometimes it's hard to follow through on those recommendations to figure out how to get there, to remember that you've got an appointment, to know who all are the players and what their roles are. And so we come in and help to make all those connections happen. We kind of fill in those gaps. Plus, we also look to provide other forms of stability in other parts of that person's life. Maybe they have unstable housing.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, uh, Maybe they need a connection with a therapist, a psychotherapist, mm-hmm. uh, to address PTSD or depression. So we help make those connections happen. And um, so fewer people are falling through the cracks. And in the first few years of doing this, we've improved that return-to-work rate up to about 68 to 69%. Wow, um, with the addition of resource facilitation. So it, it's it's something that we're doing, but I think you know we still run into funding issues for other kinds of services. Um, so there's a lot to do yet.
1: Is there a national organization uh, related to supporting, People who've suffered, people, individuals and families
3: yeah. dealing with traumatic drink, yeah, brain injury. Yeah, kind of the main one is the Brain Injury Association of America. And then there are chapters in a number of states. Indiana has our own chapter, the Brain Injury Association of Indiana, and you can find them online. I think it's BIAI.org. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a wealth of information. We're building a um, Uh, database of resources and supports that is searchable by county. Um, So, you know, there are a lot of resources available through there. Dr. Curtis, did you want to say something? Well, I was going to say
4: that all these services are very critical to uh, the person's functioning, but it also can drive recovery processes, that the brain can be damaged and my dissertation years ago was about recovery after brain damage and what can be done to enhance the likelihood of recovery and the amount of recovery and we know that that neurons grow and connect based on uh, excitement within those neurons that they're firing and if they're not firing and they're not and you're not being stimulated then the rewiring that might happen uh, is less less likely to happen and we also know that a person can recover a particular function that they might have lost because of the injury. But if you watch carefully, you'll recognize that they're performing this task in a different way. That the the brain has compensated in some way. It's rewired the functionality so that the person can can complete the task, but it's being done differently. And I think we don't recognize that enough. And it really is, again, dependent a lot on the stimulation level that the person lives with. If they're requiring themselves to perform every day, it's much more likely they're gonna recover or have some degree of recovery than if they don't push themselves to perform. And that's a lot of what Laura's doing with her program is she's pushing people daily and weekly to show up and perform. And I think Nick benefited very clearly from that sequence.
2: Yes, absolutely. And the process that Dr. Curtis was talking about is called neuroplasticity, so actually making those connections in the brain and it's a very new thing in terms of public knowledge of of that process but i know when i first learned about it that was really life-changing to to know about the ways that your brain can grow and make those new connections and i know that for a long time you know because of like what i was talking about earlier with the fatigue and the depression just not being able to get out of the house I wasn't making those connections in my brain, and you know, ultimately a lot of those processes weren't happening. And going to the speech and hearing clinic, ha- actually having to plan out how I was going to get there every week, going out of the house, and just doing that alone helped, but also when I was there, doing the exercises was hugely helpful, like I talked about before. And then they also encouraged me to volunteer and do some kind of work out in the community anything that would really push myself and you know even though at first it was a real challenge because of all these things that i hadn't done for a long time you know part of that is you have to figure out what those challenges are and what things you're capable of doing what things you are not capable of doing and then be able to have the kind of attitude toward it that you know ultimately if you do have that experience some failure in doing that that it's not a permanent thing that you can no longer do that but it's just, you know, this is something that I have to work through. Mm-hmm. So now how can I find the supports or how can I figure out how to overcome this challenge that I've met? And, you know, it was a long process for me trying to figure out those things, but I wouldn't have ever started that process had it not been for the help of the speech and hearing clinic mm-hmm. or had it not been for trying to get out and do those things, volunteer, do things outside of the house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as soon as I started doing that, it made all of those neurons fire, it made all of these things have to go on in my brain and it made the, that brain fog that had concerned me for so long become much less of an issue and my emotional state got much better as well.
4: Mm-hmm. I think in the midst of what Nick's saying is the, the issue of self-esteem uh, mm-hmm. and how I think about myself as a person certainly changes when there's a brain injury and there's a big question mark again after the injury is, who am I, what value do I have? Mm-hmm. And over time as the brain can uh, recover and the person can gain a capacity to function again, uh, that can rea- be re-assumed as a person that I have value in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a, another, I think of it as a neural pathway. We can get into negative neural pathways mm-hmm. about self-thought or we can think more positively that I have a capacity to function in the world and value. And that's just a very large, uh, tipping point, I think, in the recovery process is when a person decides that, yes, I'm, I'm going to move forward in my life and uh I'm not the same person, but I still have value.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Laura Laura Karcher is the supervisor of the Cognitive Rehab Program at IU, and we only have about three minutes to go, but I wanted to talk about the range of people that you do see and the range of recovery that you see among the people that have a traumatic brain injury.
5: Uh, we see folks generally from age 16 or so on up. Uh, we see folks in their 90s that have had falls. We see folks that have motor vehicle accidents, gunshot wounds, a variety of different issues. And we really see folks um, from from mild levels all the way to very severe where they're unable to communicate at all. Perhaps we're working on basic attention skills. We're using um, uh, alternative ways to communicate that might include Uh, computer devices might include something very similar or simple like a a communication board Um, but a lot of our focus is on return to school and return to work so the goal-setting process is very collaborative between the therapist and um, the survivor Uh, doing a thorough evaluation finding out what the strengths are as well as finding out what the weaknesses are and then using evidence-based approaches to try to remediate and um, teach compensatory measures and then quickly taking those strategies outside of the clinic into the community into a volunteer setting into the work site um, training uh, the employees at the work site bosses um, and really using whatever supports are necessary to get people back on their feet Um, again whatever goals that they have and and trying to help them achieve that
0: Mm -hmm. okay so the uh the the talking again about veterans so you mm-hmm. say you have seen some veterans mm-hmm. what what are their brain injuries coming from generally are they
5: uh, generally, from the uh, uh, the explosions that yeah. they're um, experiencing, um, I would say probably more that than actual penetrating injuries. Uh-huh. Uh, but, of course, there's shrapnel and, and all of that kind of thing. But
0: there are concussions uh, from concussions. the explosion mm-hmm. and things. Right. Uh-huh.
5: So it, there's a, a blast force that's generated, um, so it's not even necessarily being hit by an object. But that wave, that pressure wave, um, compresses not only the internal organs, but can um, uh, compress the brain tissue itself. Itself and cause an injury, and so, uh, like Dr. Curtis mentioned earlier, the brain is you know bounced around essentially in the skull, mm-hmm. and the injury can occur in that that method.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and all of you are seeing some of the some of the result of that I'm, sh- I'm sure okay well we are out of time so i i apologize that we've run out of time already but i want to want to thank you all because all four <laughs> of you have been great guests today uh stephen curtis dr stephen curtis gene kapler laura karcher and nick philbeck and we uh we appreciate your being here and sharing all, all that you've had to share uh also for producer lacey scarmana and engineer mike Pashkash, and mary Catherine carmichael i'm bob Salzberg. thanks for listening
6: Edition addition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.
0: Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving Southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net.
1: And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined. Addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life, publichealth.indiana.edu.